0: Welcome to Navarro Live, I'm Aaron Bastani. This evening I have the immense pleasure of being joined down the line by Barnaby Rain. On tonight's show we'll be discussing riots in Cardiff, how the Tories have thought up yet another way to make Britain's rail system even worse, and the chaos of Shell's shareholder meeting getting stormed by activists. Stay tuned for that one. First story. of so Breverman is starting to look like she's on borrowed time. And it's not just me that thinks it. Former Tory advisor Claire Pearsall has appeared on Sky News, where she made this prediction. She's safe. I think she's probably safe for today. I wouldn't like to uh, look at her future for any longer than the end of the week. Oh, wow. (laughs) Let's see what
1: happens, Claire. Goodness me, he might be back by Friday.
0: (laughs) It all began with the news that Braveman may have asked civil servants to book her onto a private speed awareness course. That was after she got a speeding ticket and allegedly didn't want to be recognised on a public course. Now, if true, that's likely to be a breach of the ministerial code. But would it be enough to put her out of a job? Well, new revelations today are certainly increasing the pressure to act on Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. The Mirror has reported that the Lib Dem chief whip has written to the cabinet office demanding that Braveman comes clean over claims she told an aide to lie on her behalf to a Mirror journalist. According to the Mirror, it contacted Braverman's office seven weeks ago and asked whether she'd received a speeding ticket last summer. Now, her advisor denied it four times, and that led to this exchange in Parliament.
1: At the heart of the Home Secretary's responsibility is to ensure that laws are fairly enforced for all. But when she got a speeding penalty, it seems she sought special treatment, a private course, and asked civil servants to help. She refused to say what she asked civil servants to do, so I ask her that again, and to also tell us whether she authorised her special advisor to tell journalists that there wasn't a speeding penalty when there was. Mm.
0: Yeah. Well, Mr. Speaker, as I've said earlier, in the summer of last year, I was speeding. I regret that. I paid the fine and I accepted the points. At no time did I seek to avoid the sanction. This is, uh, 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 what is serious here is the priorities of the British people. I'm getting on with the job of delivering for the British people a record number of police officers, a plan to stop the boats and standing up for crime and policing. I only wish the Labour Party would focus on the priorities too. Suella Brevman there was very careful not to answer the question. Could it be because lying to Parliament is definitely a sackable offence? Perhaps. and that's not the end of potential trouble for Braveman because the Independent has today broken, potentially, a brand new scandal. The story claims that Braveman had links to the Rwandan government before she became Home Secretary and that she failed to disclose those connections when she got the job last year. The article goes on to say this, the Home Secretary co-founded a charity called the Africa Justice Foundation with Cherie Blair, which trained Rwandan government lawyers between 2010 and 2015. Important to say, that's prior to her becoming an MP. Several people the charity worked with are now key members of President Paul P- K- are now key members of President Paul Kagame's government and are involved in the UK's 140 million pound deal to send asylum seekers to Rwanda. The charity raised £300,000 to send government lawyers from Rwanda on training courses in British universities. And Braveman remained a director until 2015, the year that she entered Parliament. But is that necessarily a problem for her? The Independent goes on to report this. Official guidelines state that ministers must complete a written declaration on appointment, which must be, quote, comprehensive, and even in instances where a particular interest may not appear relevant to the office held, err on the side of disclosure so that the fullest advice can be offered in return. Directorships and links to charities are listed as examples of information that must be given, and the independent understands that any past connections with foreign governments are particularly sensitive. So let's get this straight. Braven was the co-founder and director of a charity, giving her direct contact with the senior officials of a foreign government, a government that stands accused it should be added of multiple human rights failings and massive electoral irregularities. And then, while in charge of a scheme worth hundreds of millions of pounds, with that government, she doesn't think it's necessary to declare those connections. Seems legit. Alan Graham is former head of the Committee of Standards on Public Life. He told the Independent this, if the Rwanda policy was there when she produced a declaration of interest and did not include it, then I would have thought that could be a breach of the ministerial code. It would be a personal failure that the Prime Minister should address and may want to consult his ethics advisor on. So what does Braverman have to say about all of this? spokesperson for the Home Secretary denies that she had any links to Rwanda. They say that Braverman didn't disclose her connections to the country because it was, quote, not relevant. Does this spell the end of Suella Breverman? You might recall, I was talking to Michael Walker on Friday's show. I was a little bit circumspect, but then I was circumspect with regards to Kate Gate, and I certainly got my fingers... Burnt on that. Uh, and I was a bit, like I say, circumspect this morning too about the independent story. But having seen the actual guidelines that are given to ministers, I think she's in deep trouble, not just for this story this morning, but for what we reported last week as well. Multiple cases, potentially, of misconduct. And I think, as that lady said on Sky News this morning, it's a matter of when, not if, Suela Braverman has to go. Next story. What you're seeing here are scenes that took place last night during a riot in Cardiff. The events took place in the Ely district of the city and were triggered by the death of two boys, now named as 16-year-old Kyrie Sullivan and 15-year-old Harvey Evans. They died in a collision while riding an e-bike. The riots that followed saw between 100 and 150 people gather in Ely in a standoff against the police. And over several hours, fireworks, stones and other missiles were thrown at police offices. I just left and come straight down here. Fireworks. Fireworks. We're on a fucking go-round. Bloody hell. Made them in Iraq
1: you cunt. What oh,
0: yeah. fuck yeah. oh, Fucking
1: hell
0: It's going to go black That went past I went all the way over there He's nobody really good at aiming is he? He's not really good at aiming They're backing up now
1: They're going to run him
0: They're going to run him They're going to run him They've got, got all the materials now, haven't they? See? He's backed up on the car here. ain't going nowhere. He's going to get it. Serious scenes there in South Wales. One member of the public was also attacked by rioters after he was accused of being an undercover police officer. And there were also scenes like this. As several cars were set alight, and across the entire evening, 11 police officers were injured. Multiple arrests have now been made. And immediately after the collision that killed the boys, it was rumoured in the community that they were being chased by the police when it happened, that there was a causal relationship between a police chase and their tragic deaths. That was denied by South Wales Police and Crime Commissioner Alan Michaels, and that denial was broadcast uncritically by several media outlets, like this headline from ITV News, false rumours of police chase in teenager deaths sparked Cardiff riots says police boss. But now, today, new CCTV footage that was released just before we went live suggests the community was right all along. It was recorded just moments before the crash, and as you can see, the boys speed past on their e-bike with a police van in hot pursuit. Jenny Sampson was godmother to Harvey, one of the boys who's died, as well as the person who identified the bodies of the dead boys. Her testimony to Sky News also suggests the police were behaving badly.
1: Basically we were all at the scene and the police just was having none of it. They wouldn't let the mum, the dads come up and see their own kids laying on the floor. Um, they were under stress. They would just keep, kept saying that We'll let you know in a minute. We'll let you know. We're still waiting ourselves. Wouldn't even let them do nothing. It was disgusting how they treated them.
0: Whatever the cause of the riot, after midnight and several hours into the event, the mother of Kyrie's posted this on social media. My son is still laying on the floor due to this riot. I'm sat at home heartbroken. There are two families broken right now. I just want to see my son and I can't because of this riot that has happened. Please, I beg you all to stop and let my son be moved to hospital so I can see him. We need to see our sons. Just awful. So why was this community dismissed when they implicated the police in the deaths of the boys? In my view, and it's just a personal one, that is the default of many police forces and the media on exactly this kind of stuff. Ellie is a fairly impoverished area. As you can see from this BBC graph, 59.1% of children residents there are eligible for free school meals. That means it has the highest eligibility for free school meals in Wales. It also has the seventh highest proportion of disabled or long-term sick residents. 28% of children live with families on relatively low incomes, and 10% of those of working age and able to work are unemployed. It's not the first time there have been riots in Ely. In 1991, also a period of economic instability, and during the warm summer, another riot rocked the neighbourhood. Dubbed the Ely Bread Riot, it was sparked by disagreements between two shopkeepers. Barnaby, remarkable story, isn't it? And Quite phenomenal that the the police thought they could get away
1: with not being wholly accurate with what happened. Absolutely. And I think it's a very telling story. Local kids heard that two kids had been killed, and rumors started spreading that the police had been involved. The police replied by stating that that was not right. They said that they weren't involved and that these were false rumors. What then happened is that the British media reported that these were false rumors. So if you tuned into ITVs this morning, for instance, this morning, you would have seen confidently declared by two confident anchors that there were false rumours from local people that the police were involved in the chase. It's only because we've got CCTV that we know that, in fact, at some point, the police were involved in the chase. They they were following, a police car was seen following very fast uh, a, a bike. And so though we don't now know the full facts, and it's important to say that, Things that were being said in the community were dismissed by the police and dismissed by the media. Next story. Britain is back, kind of.
0: That's because the International Monetary Fund has changed its gloomy forecast for the country's economic growth. While it projects a recession of 0.3% for this year, as recently as last month, it is now predicting growth of 0.4%. After that, the IMF now expects GDP growth Of 1% in 2024 and 2% in both 2025 and 2026. It's always 2% a few years from now, isn't it? The Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, was pleased. He tweeted this thread. My take on today's IMF News Conference, a major upgrade to our forecast economic growth of 0.7 points. IMF credits our action to restore financial stability. He means really after his uh, predecessor, Nadim Zahawi and um, Liz Truss, of course, they confirm our long-term growth prospects are now stronger than in Germany, France and Italy. There are some challenges, including the jobs market, which is still feeling the long-term effects from the pandemic. But the IMF praises our massive free childcare policy and other budget measures to upskill our domestic workforce, workforce and get more Brits back into work. Business investment is another challenge, but the IMF welcomes my, quote, full expensing policy in the budget. I love all this bragging. It's kind of very Trumpian. This is a £27 billion business tax cut, meaning the UK has the joint most generous capital allowance in the OECD. They say it will have a positive effect on growth. The IMF now joins the OBR, the Office for Budget Responsibility, and the Bank of England in forecasting the UK will avoid recession. This is a decisive vote of confidence in the UK's economic management. We now need to keep a tight focus on our plan to halve inflation, grow the economy, and reduce debt. There's not been much good news to the Tories, so could this mark a turning point? It's important to say that GDP growth doesn't mean very much when inflation is still rampant and the cost of borrowing is still liable to rise as interest rates go up. And those are the two things that matter politically, inflation and interest rates. If they don't substantially move before the next general election, the Tories are probably toast. And the IMF touched on the issue of inflation too. Here's the Financial Times. The IMF warned inflation was set to remain above the Bank of England's 2% target for six months longer than it had forecast last month until mid-2025. Cautioning against premature celebrations, the fund noted the risk that high energy prices would be replaced by more persistent price and wage pressures that could lead inflation to plateau at an elevated rate there's a lot going on here, certainly more than Jeremy Hunt's tweets would have you believe. The subtext, the FTP, which was edited from an earlier version, is that we basically need a recession to get inflation under control. We have higher growth because inflation is higher, and to get lower inflation, we'll probably need lower growth than what we have, which, it should be said, is already pretty low, despite the bragging by Jeremy Hunt, 0.4% growth was never really considered especially impressive. Then there's the issue of wages, with the IMF saying wage growth is one reason why the economy is now set to grow. But they also claim rising wages will lead to higher inflation. Jeremy Hunt welcomes the growth projections, but he wants wages to rise less quickly, which, according to the IMF, would mean lower growth. Or rather complicated. It's almost like politicians and the media don't really communicate these things properly to the public. And while the economy is set to expand by 0.4% this year, according to the IMF anyway, initial estimates regarding net immigration point to at least 600,000 new people. So the economy expands by 0.4%, but the UK's population grows by 0.9%. In other words, on a per head basis, Britain is in, I'll use the R word, recession. In terms of output per person, it is in decline. But something as nuanced as explaining that seems to be beyond most of the media coverage that I've seen. It's almost like they don't want people to be properly informed. There's a lot of
1: chutzpah from Jeremy Hunt here. Um, It's a kind of almost comical chutzpah. He's celebrating Britain being upgraded back from truly disastrous forecasts. Why was Britain on those disastrous forecasts? Why was Britain doing so much worse than its European neighbours and competitors? because of a completely chaotic experiment from his party in government, part of which time he was chancellor, that is under Liz Truss. That experiment cost us, the estimates say, 30 billion pounds to the British economy. In higher interest rates, it cost people higher mortgage payments. That meant higher rent payments for lots of people. £30 billion loss meant a big black hole in funding for schools and hospitals and the wages of the hardworking people, from teachers to nurses, who work in them. All of those people suffered and the economy took a hit because of chaotic decisions taken on an ideological basis by leadership of the Conservative Party. That's the mess that Jeremy Hunt is cleaning up now, a mess entirely of his party's own making. And so to celebrate the fact he's done a little better at restoring the basic capitalist stability that has been the flatlining British economy for the last 10 years, anemic growth, low productivity, uh, minimal investment in public services, and people's living standards falling, to celebrate the return to that norm from a truly clusterfuck catastrophic norm presided over by Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, neither of whom have even apologised while people's living standards went through the floor. That is a really, really strange day from Jeremy Hunt. But it's the kind of disingenuous spin that I think we've come to expect from British governments and from the British Conservative Party.
0: Barnaby, there is a bit of a disconnect here as well, isn't there? Because the IMF is saying that we've got stronger growth because wages are rising. But at the same time, they say that if we want to get inflation under control, we need to have slower wage growth. You've got Jeremy Hunt celebrating. He's saying, look, we've gone from a 0.3% recession to 0.4% growth. But he also wants wages to not rise as quickly. So is there a fundamental decision to be made here between rising GDP and inflation? Like, do we need to have a recession
1: to basically eliminate a lot of the inflation right now in the system? Every crisis the last 40 or 50 years has been used by the rich and powerful to further cement their position and pummel the living standards of most people. The financial crisis, of course, was used to uh, uh, to cut the social wage by uh, withdrawing support from public services in order to have big amounts of money available to bail out banks. And then this inflationary crisis caused by a war in Ukraine and rising prices of key commodities like energy, like oil, has been used uh, to say, there's a problem with inflation, we've got to cut people's even though people need higher wages to meet the higher costs of uh, higher energy while energy companies see profits soar. So these are crises not caused by ordinary people. They're caused either by banks or by a Russian war in Ukraine. um, And then ordinary people are asked to pay the price for them. And so that's what we see in the demand that in order to fight inflation, wages have to fall. Of course, you could fight inflation, which isn't being caused by wage rises, but has been caused last year by energy price shocks, that is supply side. Shocks. you could fight that by controlling prices and by redistributing money from the massive profits of energy companies benefiting from that inflation and of Amazon and other companies that have made huge profits in the pandemic. You could redistribute those profits to ensure that everyone had the money they need to meet a cost of living crisis. Instead, the textbook orthodox economics demand is for working people to pay for a crisis that ensures that we get a further rebalancing of our economy and society in the interests of a few wealthy and powerful people. That's orthodox neoclassical economics. And the IMF, though it's now subject to lots of internal debates and there's a kind of question of its future direction, has been central as a global pillar of that imperial capitalist consensus all over the world, ensuring that the economy was designed to benefit only a few, largely a few in the global north uh, and only the richest within the global north. I'm putting
0: a question to you here, Barnaby, which is, are we going to have high inflation until we have a recession? Obviously, we, we, we want to reduce inflation, and we obviously want growth that benefits working people. But like I say, the subtext here, which nobody's willing to say, by the way, the FT wrote an earlier edition of that article, which they then edited. The IMF doesn't say it explicitly, but fundamentally, if you believe the points that they're making, take those points to their logical conclusion, you need wage repression, and you need a recession in order to get inflation down to
1: around 2 or 3%. That's basically what has to happen, isn't it? there is a political choice about how you fight inflation. So you can fight inflation by cutting the purchasing power of millions and millions of people by holding wages back. Or in an era where we have record profits higher than they've ever been in recorded British economic history, you can attack inflation by attacking those profits. So that would mean uh, controlling prices on some commodities whose massive prices causing inflation, above all energy and commodities related to energy, uh, also food prices. So you could control prices. You could make companies, big supermarkets, for example, pay for those controls on prices. And then you could tax the wealthy in order to ensure raising benefits to keep them in line with inflation and raising public sector pay to keep them in line with inflation, while also ensuring that unions have the power to act, changing our anti-union laws so that unions have the power to act in the private sector to get wage rises that keep track with inflation. All of that's perfectly possible and it's affordable because we now face an inflationary crisis coming alongside not a crisis in the profit rate, not a crisis for capitalists, but massive profits for those capitalists. So we could redistribute that money, but instead the political choice of the Conservative Party, of most of the ideologues, though not all I should say, at the International Monetary Fund, the political choice is the same as it was in the 1980s under Thatcher, which is to fight inflation by inducing a contraction in the economy, a deflationary policy that fights inflation by cutting demand, adding people to the unemployment rolls, and cutting the pay of the those in work. That's the ideological and political choice, but it's not the only option in an era of high inflation and high profits. We could attack profits rather than wages. I agree with all of that, but I would add that we we do want to dampen
0: down demand. It's just we want to dampen down demand for very rich people. That probably will have something of an impact on headline GDP statistics, but that's that's an argument for another day, which is to say that growth doesn't always benefit working people. Very rarely the case, in fact. Next story. Despite inventing trains, it's fair to say Britain isn't at the cutting edge of modern rail. Sure, we have HS2 on the way, but compared to the Shinkansen of Japan or high-speed rail in China, France or Spain, the system feels rather antiquated. But it isn't quite antiquated enough, apparently. That's because the government have come up with a new way, to Britain's, a new way for Britain's rail system to become even more crap. The Times reports this. Operators have been told that they should stop providing Wi-Fi unless they can demonstrate its business justification in a move that will infuriate passengers. The move is being pushed by the Department for Transport in an attempt to cut costs as it looks to reform all aspects of the railway. Virtually all operators provide Wi-Fi free of charge at present. The department insists that it is looking for value for money and that Wi-Fi is low on passengers' priorities, particularly on shorter journeys. It is also examining whether or not to upgrade Wi-Fi equipment installed in the middle of the last decade on longer routes. The story was revealed by author and railway historian Christian Walmar on his podcast Calling on Stations. He branded it quote, a ridiculous measure and said this. The DFT actually wants to reduce the quality of the train service by saying to passengers, sorry, you can't access Wi-Fi. It's all about saving money but we're trying to attract commuters back on the railway and people like to get on their phone or laptops. They're going backwards. My view is that Wi-Fi is essential as toilets now. Oh, I wouldn't go quite that far. People expect to be connected. And now we all know that Wi-Fi on Britain's trains is patchy at best, but that's an argument to improve it, not scrap it altogether. It's like having a button on your keyboard that no longer works and rather than just trying to fix it or maybe even buy a new keyboard, you say, that's it. I don't need a computer anymore. I'll do everything on my phone. I'll write my university coursework on my iPhone X. Nobody sensible would think that. But right now, the core advantage of rail over air for longer journeys or rail over cars for shorter ones is the fact that you can work while on the train. But that isn't something that the government seems to care about. And given Rishi Sunak personally prefers traveling by helicopter, you can begin to understand why. It's almost like the government are pathologically committed to reducing Britain's productivity. How do we address the productivity puzzle? I know, let's remove Wi-Fi from trains packed with commuting workers. And while we're at it, why don't we remove the seats too? Just stand up for a few hours or sit on the floor. Meanwhile, in France, trains offer free Wi-Fi as they travel as fast as 300 kilometres per hour. And today, they've announced a world first. Here is Clement Buen, basically France's Minister for Transport, on Twitter earlier today. This morning, the ban on airlines and the events in an alternative of less than two and a half hours by train becomes a reality. This is a major signal and a world first. We continue. It is a world first, important to say. So France is banning planes because its rail network is so good. While here in Britain, we're making it harder than ever before to work while on a train.
1: It is very telling that the British state's growth model does not involve... A serious, sustainable plan to invest in industries that means that uh, we can upskill the workforce, increase productivity um, and and generate sustained growth. Instead, the growth model of the last 30 and 40 and 50 years has largely been parasitic. It's been about taking from growth that was developed in the post-war period taking, for example, from the infrastructure developed in our railways and attempting to ensure quick profits for a few, some of them then donate to the Conservative Party, quick profits for a few um, uh, at the expense of most of us. So rather than developing a world-class railway system, which we always needed and which we need even more now in an era of climate catastrophe so that we don't have to take short-term flights of the kind that Rishi Sunak takes every other day, it seems, when he gets on a helicopter to go down the road, rather than investing in a kind of up-to-date, world-class Transport system. Instead, we have profiteers taking from the transport system developed over decades, um, and and using that infrastructure to raise ticket prices and uh, and 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 profit uh, as, as private bosses since privatisation. That's the model more broadly of the British economy. You take from things developed in the past. That's how Thatcher funded um, uh, massive unemployment benefit payments from her policies by taking from the bung of North Sea oil rather than investing it sustainably like the Norwegians did. Um, so you take in a parasitic way in order to profit for a few. That's the model of British capitalism and that's why it's no surprise that while other countries are investing in railways, uh, Britain's prime minister uh, would rather sit and watch things burn uh, uh, while, uh, while, while his friends profit. Next
0: story. Shareholders of the energy giant Shell have gathered in London to hear just how much money they'll be making this year. And let me tell you, it's a lot. The company made record profits of £32 billion pounds last year. But before the shareholders and business school execs got to do their best Scrooge McDuck impressions, diving into their hoards of cash, this happened. Yeah. As climate protesters stormed at the stage, things only escalated. <laughs> Bedlam. You could see Shell chairman Andrew McKenzie there looking like he was going to make a run for it. But that wasn't the only disruption that took place.
1: We know that you knew about climate. Change now
0: you're making
1: money off the war in Ukraine. We can't afford to eat our homes, and you're still getting big tax breaks. Go to hell, shall come back no more. No more no more no more. Go to hell, shall don't you come back no more?
0: I love it. Bang that up on Spotify, I'll be listening to that uh, on my commute although there won't be any Wi-Fi, joining in on the action were also ordinary people standing up against the energy giant. Wildfires across areas. Europe.
1: Famines about, in Madagascar.
0: Harvest failure. Made. Crop so you're failure. Your
1: your fuel you fueling climate cracks.
0: People already impacted
1: catastrophically research. by, I'm by I'm the I'm effects of climate breakdown. No. We will not... Problem. Problem. not allow this to
0: happen we are calling you out we're shutting you down shut down shell shut down shell shut down shell shut down shell shell.
1: you're killing millions because
0: of your actions millions will die because of your actions millions will die you are killing the planet, you're killing our no, children. No. Like, you want to you make your way up? I no. Shut Have down we? Shell!
1: Right, no, 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 Shut okay. down okay. Shell! With every new well, every new gas field, every minute that you ignore the horn of compliance, people die.
0: Fantastic. Uh, there's a reason people are so angry, of course. First, Shell's board has refused, even in the face of shareholder demands, to set more ambitious targets for emissions by 2030. But it's not enough that they're killing us and, more importantly, our descendants. Shell is ripping us off too. Despite that £32 billion windfall last year, Shell only pays 22 pence in tax per UK citizen. That's less than they pay in almost every other country that they operate in. The Shell meeting wasn't the only place that we saw direct action today around climate. Nearby on Blackfriars Bridge in London, this happened. (laughs) Let me just explain what's happening there quickly. Obviously, direct action. A young man tried to engage in some vigilante justice and the police stopped him. Naturally, Right-wingers are, of course, losing their minds. Nick Timothy is a contributing editor to The Telegraph, as well as being a former advisor to Theresa May when she was Prime Minister. He said this, arrested by the police for doing the police's job. Amazing to think that Timothy believes it's the police's job to assault people. It's important to say the police have since said that nobody was arrested. So a bit of fake news from Mr. Timothy there. Uh, That seems like an understandable judgment, by the way, from the police, I should add. A person got hot-headed. They tried vigilante justice. The police then cuffed them and told them to pack it in. And I thought these people believed in the idea of policing. As deterrent, but apparently not. Barnaby, incredible day of
1: protest and direct action across London. What do you make of it? Well, in 2018, Shell spent 55 million on climate branding. That is, they spent 55 million trying to persuade all of us that they were green. While in the preceding years, they'd spent just one percent of their long-term investment budget on investment in green energy projects. This is a company that has no serious plans to reduce its oil and gas exploration by 2030 when the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says we need urgent action. It's a company that is alone responsible for over 1.5 percent of long term emissions uh, over the next years. just one company. So it's doing enormous damage. And it's got no interest in really mitigating that damage. It's only interested in greenwashing, in propaganda uh, that tells us all how much they care about climate change with nice posters uh, while destroying the planet. And of course, we have a government in Britain, a former prime minister, Liz Truss, used to work for Shell. Uh, We have a government that is so entangled uh, with oil and gas uh, uh, donations uh, that they continue to license new projects uh, while the planet is destroyed. So you literally have a situation where people's pockets are being lined, where people's bank accounts are going ka-ching, while other people drown, while other people face drought, while other people face increasingly uninhabitable conditions. That is, millions of people will have to move over the coming years because the parts of the world they live in will cease to be inhabitable for human beings. And why are we doing all that? It's not to fight a war. It's not because we desperately need to make the world uninhabitable. It's just to line the pockets of a few oil and gas executives. That's what's at stake in the fight against Shell. So isn't it so telling that the right wants to make heroes of people who march into the street to beat up protesters who are just trying to save us and our children and our grandchildren, forget our grandchildren, us right now, from catastrophic climate change. The police, meanwhile, use new powers gifted to them by the Conservative government with the support of the Labour Party to attack protesters. And those new powers were explicitly listed as being given in order to stop climate protest. So here's the Kafkaesque or the Orwellian or just the bizarre situation of contemporary Britain. Climate uh, destroying companies bash the planet, cause the world to be uninhabitable in large swathes, cause floods and droughts. Politicians take donations from those companies and ensure that laws protect them. Then those same politicians pass laws to attack protesters who try to stop it all from happening. And then right wing commentators support vigilantes who attack those protesters. It's kind of like a death drive, isn't it? It is a death drive, but it's particularly acute with regards to future generations. So you you said there,
0: forget future generations, but millions of people, you know, in our own lifetime will die as a result of climate change. That's inarguable. Um, but we do, in these debates, discount the future in the name of the present, which is to say that the utility or the happiness of a single person in 2023 matters more than a single person in 21-23. In uh, we discount the happiness and the survival of people decades and centuries from now. Now, clearly, if you were having a sensible debate about how to maintain our planet's ecosystems, you you wouldn't do that. But it seems quite obvious to me that we say, well, I have a right to drive to work, unimpeded, and, and that matters more than the fact that hundreds of millions of people won't be able to access food 50 years from now because of the decisions we're making here in 2023. There's an active discounting for the future, and I think for any sensible, moral, principled person, look, they might not agree with the protesters, right? They might not defend them, but they can certainly explain them. They can certainly understand them. They certainly wouldn't go and assault them on the streets. So uh, I'll ask a a question here. If you hear Barnaby on that assault in particular, should the police have arrested that gentleman for the act of vigilante justice?
1: Well, I'm less concerned about what the police do in an individual case than about those kinds of systemic issues. It doesn't matter to me that much uh, whether they arrest him. What concerns me is that people are taking that kind of action and are being celebrated by former uh, election campaign gurus of the Conservative Party, Nick Timothy, who celebrated someone going and punching a protester Um, was once the man responsible for the general election campaign of Theresa May, who ended up being prime minister. So this is very, very much in the mainstream, the kind of celebration of that vigilante justice. And doubtless, it will be celebrated, too, by the right-wing press. And he's not attacking protesters who are trying to take away uh, his, his, his house. He's attacking protesters who are trying to ensure that we get the survival of the planet long term. We know, you know, you talk about the future. We know that in 1988, Shell commissioned a report which talked about the dangers of climate change. In fact, they predicted with scary accuracy quite how bad things would get by 2030. So what did they do with that report? They put the word confidential on it, hid it away, and then spent tens, possibly hundreds of millions lobbying governments against climate action, including spreading disinformation about climate change, that it wasn't really happening or that it wasn't caused by companies like them, which they knew to be false because they had a report that said the truth. So we've got corporations trying to protect their profits uh, long into the future uh, by ensuring misinformation and disinformation while they know the truth about climate catastrophe. While protesters try to raise the alarm on that, vigilantes attack them and they're supported not only by the right-wing press, but by people who were once at the heart of the British state. So whether one individual is arrested or not is kind of less important to me than that big picture. True, but I I think it's an interesting debate
0: around, you know, obviously we could see more and more of this and and, and what's the appropriate course of action by the police. I think it's a, I think it's an important question, but we can agree to disagree on that. On your point there as well about the scale of what's going on, and of course, bigger issues than whether or not somebody should be arrested. There was an incredible story out in The Guardian yesterday, and it was saying that, you know, we could be looking at 1 to 1.5 billion people having to move to a cooler. Uh, climate, uh, I think by 2070, extraordinary numbers. And you're basically saying, not you, of course, but somebody like Nick Timothy, that those hundreds of millions of people who have their lives disrupted, destroyed because of what we're doing now matter less than us. That's the core claim here. My ability to drive somewhere, my ability to do exactly as I like, matters more than somebody's right to live in a, a peaceful, safe, habitable place decades from now. And I think that's, I think that's deeply immoral, frankly. I think it's quite new as well. We didn't used to think like that. People used to think in rather long periods of time. They used to actually sort of consider how they would leave the planet for future generations. They might not have used that kind of language, but stewardship was a thing. Thanks to everyone for tuning in this evening. Come back tomorrow at 6 p.m. for another live stream. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to com slash
1: support.